Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Doric, suppliers of window and door hardware to homes and apartments all across Australia, New Zealand and Asia. I'm really excited about our guest this week. He's a Supercars race winner, a Bathurst 24-hour winner and the last person to drive a Honda Formula One car. And after all, he's a good bloke to boot too. Cameron McConville is our guest on the podcast. A few highlights from the chat ahead for you to listen out for. He tells us about the time he rode a bicycle from Melbourne to the Bathurst 1000 and how it was very nearly the last thing he ever did. The time he copped a not-so-gentlemanly spray from Gentleman Jim Richards. An opportunity that he turned down that would have changed the course of supercars history. This is one I think I've really heard him talk about at this level and length of detail. He talks about the time he barrel-rolled a car at Laguna Seca in the corkscrew, and he talks about the massive bluff that helped secure that last lap infamous win at Winton in 2004. Once again, too, another big thank you to our V8 Sleuth followers on Facebook for your couch racer questions. They've turned up some really cool stories. So, here we go. Buckle up, time to hit the start button. It's Cam McConville on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Doric. Cam, welcome to V8 Sleuth HQ. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having oh, me. Where do we start? Where do we start? It's hard to know where to start with you because there's so many things to talk about, but we'll do our best. That's a worry. No, it's not a worry. It's it's good. Um, later on, we've got a range of questions from our readers who we've put the call out through Facebook for various questions. Uh, some of them are pretty curly, so I'm going to hide Ho- this bit of paper here. Hopefully, they were relatives of mine that are on <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> Um, you must have paid them all. Hey, um, it does occur to me that you are a history maker. Right. Right. Do you like where is this is going? Good? No, yeah. not necessarily. Well, weren't you the youngest ever to hold a CAMS licence back in the day? I think it's been beaten now. But Yeah, no, you're right. It's a good point. I think I was the youngest uh, unrestricted. So I think there was younger. So Brian Sala, if you recall, yeah, who yeah. Ra- his dad, Gavin, was his, raced in a Formula 5000. Brian, his son, and I were there on the same day. Uh, I was in a Formula V. He was in a Formula 5000 as a 14-year-old. Small difference. Yeah, correct. Actually, he might have been a tad older, so I think that's where I jumped in front of him. He was 15. So I was 14 and nine months. Uh, so just before I turned 15, come out of carts and, yeah, got my CAMS licence at Calder on those uh, evaluation days and um, had the big P plate, but away I went. And when we talk about history, as far as we can figure, you're the only driver to have ever won around in all three tiers of supercars. So you you won in the main game, uh, Winton 04. Yep. You won a round of Super 2, which a lot of people might forget at Winton from Same memory. Venue. Yes. 2010. And then you went and won a Kumo, which is now Super 3. It was V8 Touring Cars then. You made a one-round appearance at Phillip Island a few years ago and you won there. So you are... We that's have it. a history maker on the V8 Sleuth Lock podcast. It in. I'm surprised that that's not trending globally just quietly, Noons. But, well, uh, nationally, just to begin yeah, with. Yeah, nationally so. is good. No, you're right. Actually, I'd forgotten about the um, the Kumo one until recently because Ben Eggleston drafted me in. Um, and it was for one round. We had a vacant seat. 
uh, next to Justin Riggio, I mm. think it was, who's actually a really good kid and a great driver. And he was going for the championship. Uh, Ryan Simpson was the main challenger. Anyway, I jumped in the VZ and it was a car that I'd driven before, as in that spec, you know, HRT car. And, uh, yeah, was lucky enough to win the round and quit while I was ahead. So that was the end of my Kumo. <laughs> one round, one, one win, one walk round, away. One Drop round up. wonder. And then, yeah, the Winton one was um, I was Enduros for HRT, so it was my first year mm. out of the main series. And we put together a deal with some sponsorship and walking with, with Shorter Eggleston's. Runner Cup. With, with Eggleston's, Eggleston's correct. Yeah. yeah, so it was a VE, uh, Walking Shore VE, and I jumped in. Steve Owen was running uh, in a Greg Murphy racing car from memory, a red Commodore. So he was the main challenge. Mm. Anyway... So I turned up for Winton and um, he qualified on pole. I was second, but yeah, won the round. So there you go, all three. In, in fact, I don't know, that would be a hard thing in these days. I say these days because a young guy coming into Kumo, by the time he gets to the main game, um, would be you know quite a journey, let's say probably three to five years minimum, and then he's got to try and win in all three. But I did it the, the other way. I went main <laughs> you went the other way. Super two. So effectively, it's kind of cheating, I'd so, suggest. So if we ever start a Super 4 series, we're going to ring you up. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, done. Particularly okay. if I'm racing 15-year-olds that have never <laughs> raced a car before. Make me look good. Hey, one of the things we get asked about constantly, when we put up a photo on our social media of the yellow Nations Cup Bathurst 24-hour winning Monaro, it gets amazing feedback. And in, um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Um, Nostalgia? No, 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 no. Engagement. That's the word I'm looking for. Massive engagement. But am I right in remembering that you actually weren't part of the driving lineup originally for that car? You were a bit of a last-minute Charlie to all of that. I certainly was. I hadn't sat in it until Bathurst. In fact, we still joke about it in the um, circles and with Simon Simon McNamara at Holden brings it up often that in the poster... It was my head on Nathan's potty, and you could pick it a mile away. It was a bit of photoshopping that did look so bad. But I was I was pushing quite heavily behind the scenes, so I'd love to jump in that car. But I guess I wasn't a factory Holden driver at the time. I was driving for Lansvale in 01, 02, 03 uh, for that sort of three-year period. But anyway, um, you know, I think Gary... Gary weakened and look, they, they they tested the car and just said it's going to be a big ask for three drivers, which 24 hours is. Mm. Um, so I guess I was first reserve and got drafted in. Oh, it was probably less than two weeks before and jumped in the car. But because I hadn't done many laps, I ended up qualifying it just to do miles and we were on pole and we had a win. So it was, yeah, it was, it was actually, I still sign models and posters of that car today mm. and I don't get to all the rounds, I get to a few. So it definitely had a big impact and it was ahead of its time for sure. What was it like to drive? Everyone seems to have this impression that it was very tightly restrained, held back. Clearly it was held back to a, to a point, but yeah. probably people think it was held back more than perhaps it was. But what was it like to drive? It, it, it was on paper. It, it had all the bits. You yeah, needed. it was fun. It was fun to drive. Noons. It was. It was. Um, wouldn't say it was easy to drive. Any cars tricky at the limit. But we were driving it in the race at eighty percent. You know, we were short shifting. I mean, we were very lucky. The first year, Nath got collected by a lap car and got put in the gravel. Got out of the car and dug himself out. And that's Nathan Pretty we're talking about. So, so for those who who perhaps don't remember because there are a lot of younger fans of the day who weren't around in 2002 so it was Stephen Richards, Garth Tander, Nathan Pretty and yourself in this seven litre yellow Mm. Monaro Um, hardly the sort of thing that you could be slightly conspicuous about I mean you could everyone could see you and hear you coming they could and and it's funny because when you slept during the night you could hear every lap of this thing because it was such a deep sound yeah (laughs) and so look it revved to about Five eight six thousand during the race, we were between five and five two, so we're a thousand revs short to make sure 
it went. Yeah, we we hadn't done. I mean, it was untried, you know, even though it was quick. So it had full independent rear suspension, again, ahead of its time. Um, you know, sequential gearbox, which clearly was ahead of its time. Back then, everyone was H-pattern, um, you know, AP pedal box. Yeah, it was a purpose-built race car. Um, but we were only do- – we were, you know, I think we qualified at a 16, unrestricted. I think there was a couple more seconds, you know, but when you think about it, it probably would have done or could have done a 12 or a 13, which back, you know, 2001 was pretty quick. Um, but we raced in the high teens for most of the day to keep the thing going. It spat an all-drive belt off a couple of times, so if you downshifted a bit early into the chase, it would spit in the belt off, which would cook the engine. But I, I don't know how, but each time it happened, you know, the driver saw the light came in, they, they refit it, and away we went. So, yeah, there was, there was, it, was a, it was a great part of Holden Motorsports, I guess, even though the race didn't go on. It certainly, uh, you know, ruffled a few feathers, that car. And that car came back... The next year to finish second, but some other blokes in a red Monaro turned yeah, up. Yeah, some bloke. Some bloke called Brock, Brock apparently. Brocky. And that was a fun, you know, a lot of people asked, did you race with Peter Brock? I said, well, I didn't race against him, but I guess I was his teammate for one weekend when we went to the second Monaro, and that had Murph, Jason Bright, Brock and Todd Kelly in it. And then the last in, you know, Garth was in our car, Murph was in the red car, and they were bunch of, you know, bashing the rev limiter down the straight and it was on like, and for the last 30 laps. And this might be a chance to clarify. One of the uh, questions we get, had from um, a fan on social media is that I do recall in that race that the yellow car was pitted for quite a long time and that kind of brought the two cars together in terms of the lead lap and, and the like. That wasn't a ruse. There was actually something wrong with that yellow car. This wasn't being set up to give Brock a, a Bathurst win. And then if you watch the last four laps... Oh, uh, it those was on. two were going at it. It was on, and there was the only team orders from Gary was don't take each other out, but any man can win. So you know, but the problem was the cars were so even, they'd hit the limit of two thirds of the way down the straight. So you just see them, you know, stagnated nose to tail. Then Murph was blocking, Garth was left right trying to do the over under. It was actually great little battle to the end um but yeah we were second that year we won the year before but i think uh the highlight was just drinking some of bev brock smoothies and some of the <laughs> stuff that she put together for peter i didn't drink any of his tea some weird tea but he had great smoothies which i had quite a few that weekend i think you did all manage to convince him to take a sip of a vb in the press yes. conference afterwards that's a highlight there's I've, a there's I've a photo st- of that I've still got it i've still got it so we've got the uh the the, the winning trophy there's all eight of us the two Thing, two cars, and then Brock's got a VB up with a real funny look on his face, about to have a swig. So uh, he, he did. He drank. I think he had one sip of it anyway for the camera. Hey, uh, speaking of the camera too, uh, I had a camera phone lurking in Newcastle last year, and there was a bloke going for a hot lap with Nick Percat in the passenger ride oh, yes. session. It was you. So that's, yes. that's your that's your last go in a supercar with, yeah. with Nick Perkett. That's well, crazy. Nick Nick and I drove together in 2016, you know, in the Enduro. So it had been a couple of years since I'd been in the supercar, two years, I guess. And um, it came about courtesy of Timken. So I was an ambassador uh, last few years for Timken. They're obviously a supporter of Nick's as well. So, yeah, there was the common sponsor connection. And uh, I got, do you want to go for a ride? I said, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, Nick... Nick was absolutely up it for the rent just quietly. We had some moments where I was just like, this this is really close to hanging it on the fence. Um, it reminded me a lot of Homebush. There's just no room for error there. You know, inch perfect with where you place the car. Uh, but, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I, I wasn't keen to do another lap, to be honest. I was starting to cook in the passenger seat. Did it, When you get your bum in a, a race car again, which you still do, you, you're not um, 
retired from you're not racing full time as your no. purpose and your primary thing in your world, but you're still doing the twelve hour and, and things like that. When you when you have something like that where you go for a ride in a supercar, does it flicker a switch in you? Does it get the hairs on the back of your neck going that oh, I do miss a chunk of this, or is yeah. it enough to say that's good, that's fun, I yeah. enjoyed it, but it is what probably it is. a bit of both. Noons, I think being in a supercar, I realised what a specific driving style it is and the commitment that those guys are putting into every lap, you know. And, and look, sometimes the racing's criticised these days as being processional, but that is because all the drivers are absolutely on the limit. The cars are so similar, the tyres are the same. So when I go for a ride with Nick, I see how much physical and mental effort there is to drive a supercar quick. Whereas when, as you mentioned, I do three or four of the GT rounds with a good friend, Adrian Dietz, in the Lambo. We did the 12-hour. So I get to drive an amazing car in the Huracan, a GT3 car. It's mega rewarding, but makes an older bloke like me look good with traction, <laughs> ABS. You know, and, and I can see why Roland Dane would stop though the, the supercar guys doing too many miles in a GT car because it really does spoil you. So whilst I love still racing and, and I still want to be racing something, when I get into a supercar with Nick, like as you mentioned, I just went, yeah, it's definitely another level. And you forget that. Just it is super, Racing a supercar in our championship is another level for those drivers for sure. We're going to bounce around, which is what we do here on the V8 Sleuth podcast presented by Doric. Take me back to uh, – we actually did a story with you on our website last year, a little series that we had rolling of the worst car you ever drove. Yeah. And you nominated the Shell Sierra. Um which you were supposed to race in the 92 Bathurst race. You were the reserve driver for that second entry for the Sierra for the Shell Dick Johnson team, and you described it as the worst car you drove, probably more the scariest car you ever drove. So you're, you're, a, you're a kid. You were still in school, weren't you, in 92, Formula Ford uh, champion? Yeah, just finished year 12. A- and you year. go to Bathurst to drive a Dick Johnson Sierra. Yeah. For, you know, what, 600-plus horsepower, skinny tyres? 650 or 680 horsepower on a 16-inch tyre or whatever with no downforce, really, other than a little wing on the back. So memories, thoughts? Oh, were, were oh, you, were you, let's, let's, let's just fess up here. Yeah. Were you packing yourself oh, just a I was, Oh, absolutely, I was. <laughs> absolutely, Nunes. I was petrified. I remember I did practice laps. You know, they, they got me to do five, six laps in each session at the very end. So, as you mentioned, it was Greg Crick, Terry Shield, Car 18. Um, and it, it dropped – no, it, it had an electrical problem in the middle of the day in the race. So they'd kind of gone a lap down or maybe even more. They were out of contention. And Ross Stone, who was very good to me, sort of saw me as a longer-term potential sort of prospect, I guess, for the team and, and said, we're going to pop you in in the race. And in practice, I felt relatively comfortable. But, you know, I, I think – from memory, I was about a second off what the main guys were doing in the car, so I got down to a reasonable time, but so wasn't ready for the race. And my dad was there, and I remember the black clouds coming in because 92 was the year Jim ended up in the wall. Called them all a pack of really Packers, lovely, yeah, you know what? Pack of yeah. great supporters. <laughs> and um, at about 2 o'clock, because I was just in my team gear, Ross said, you know, suit up, we're going to get you in. And I remember my old man, I, the look on it, I honestly thought – he was going to need CPR in the back of the paddock and I wasn't far behind him. I was just like, oh, you sure? He goes, yeah, yeah, yep, no pressure, but it'd be good to get some laps under your belt in the race. I'm like, okay. And I remember as young as you are, you're like, yep, yep, I'll be fine. But deep down, I was just like petrified. I'm like, I don't really want to get in this car because, I mean, your feet used to come off the floor over the rise at, at um, down Conrad and then Mountain Straight, the taco would light up because it would spin the wheels over the crest at Mountain Straight. It was a scary car. Anyway, as the rain came down and all hell broke loose, Ross looked over and he goes, 
we might leave it till next year, hey? And I said, no problem. <laughs> so, so I dodged a bullet there. I so wasn't ready. And, you know, it's it's interesting now the progression path is obviously there's a proper one, which is great for motorsport in Australia. There's Super 3, Super 2. There's obviously other categories you can do, you know, GT, now TCR for young guys. But there it was Formula Ford and nothing, you know. Mm. So I, I had done three, I think one test day at Lakeside and two other test days. And again, 15 to 20, maybe 30 laps tops each test day. Uh, and then I found myself, you know, at the mountain. So well underdone in today's <laughs> day and age. You got to go back, though, with um, with DJR when the world changed in touring cars here when we went V8. So a Falcon yep. with Paul Radisic, it's it, it, that that race and what happened in it uh, is the thing that has was probably brought up with you for seven, eight nine years be sick of hearing about it yeah but the interesting take and for those who don't know there was there was a you had a little accident while running up the front pancake the rear of the car the car yep. finished i think eighth or ninth eighth yeah um it's sort of deemed as the 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 thing that stopped your career for a couple of years and mm. stopped the momentum and the drives disappeared looking back on it now um was that really the case or was it a case that after that stephen johnson was coming on the scene you didn't have piles of cash in your pocket it probably would have happened anyway had that crash not happened. Um, yeah, I think you part. Yeah, I, I think you've touched on something that I was probably, you know, warming that seat for Steve. Absolutely, I guess it may have put some other teams off. You know, so and it's a good point. I mean, you know, my my dad funded up until Formula Ford, and after that, I mean, he was in a senior executive role for Qantas. He'd moved to Sydney, and he's like, you know. Yeah, and, and I guess I wasn't on my own because he was always there trying to help and ringing around for me, but, you know, he couldn't keep writing checks. So, um, you know, I think it took me seven years after that to get into a full-time supercar drive mm. from my first Bathurst start. Um, yeah, and, and look, I was well underdone, but I didn't have a year in Super 2. Or, and, um, and as we've said before, you know, I think nowadays you do – Kumo, you might even do two full years in Dunlop before you try and pick up a co-drive. Let's just look mm. at Will Brown, for an example, you know, as an example of coming through. Whereas, yeah, I had done Formula Ford um, in 92, and then in 93 I did no racing other than the 12-hour in a laser because I couldn't find the budget and went straight to Bathurst in the Falcon. So, yeah, massively underdone. But you're right, I think Stevie was there. But there's no doubt that crash... Um, you know, I was the first young guy, and there was a bit of that's what happens when you give young guys a go. So let's stick to who we know, Cedo, you know, all the all that genre. Mm. Um, but then a guy called Lowndes came through, Steve Richards, Jason Bright. So they all probably um, had a bit more momentum, and my momentum, the handbrake went on for a little bit. But that leads to, to my next point. That if you really looked at the pinpoint for the starting of the youth movement the regular topic that's raised is Lowndes, and rightly so. I mean, he was yeah. the guy who launched to the successful realm of becoming the champion, driving for the factory Holden mm. team, winning Bathurst, and becoming the new public darling and media darling. But if you wind it back, you started that. You were the 16-year-old yeah. kid and the, the teenager in Formula 4 that got the go at Dick Johnson's team with the Sierra, and yeah. you, you kind of started it. It's all your fault, really. Uh, yeah, well, Frank Lowndes can blame me, you know. Um, look, I think, yeah, you're right, and that's nice to be acknowledged as that. But I guess, Craig, if you look at your own SWOT analysis of your ability, Craig had definitely more natural talent than I did. He had more flair. You know, he was able to go fast with little little miles in a car. I still feel that, you know, I could get to that level, 
and I think over the years I was able to be competitive at supercar or whatever, but I probably back then I was a bit more conservative, so I needed more miles, you know, to get up to speed, and that was something that I worked on when I got to Audi in the super touring. I remember Kim Jones taking me aside saying, you just, you know, you're quick, but you, you take too long to get there, and that's when I really started working on getting in a car and in three laps really grabbing it by the scruff. But that took a lot of years to get that. Whereas I think when Craig came on, he would go. He had a test at HRT. He was just quick straight away, you know. So he was able, I guess, to leapfrog me. Um, but you know, I was I was fortunate to meet Tom Warwick. You know, I had to yeah, you know, I had to beaver away, find a sponsor, go and do GDP, which we won that series, and then Super Touring came along, a bit like TCR now, and that was a godsend for me because it got me a factory drive and sort of I guess got me back with some momentum. And that, and that was a topic I wanted to pick up. The the super touring era is one that in the years after it, people kind of forgot it very quickly. But now that we're nearly 20 years down the track from a lot of that, yeah. and TCR's on the scene now, so there's a natural connection with what happened in the two-litre days. Um, that's one of the most popular topics we get asked about is that era of those cars because they weren't as highly publicised as supercars at the time, but now it's got everyone's minds jogging back yes. to that so that actually took us back because we did spend some time with jim richards recently do you remember a run-in everyone calls him gentleman jim mm. but do you remember a day at lakeside in 1998 when it wasn't so gentlemanly yeah i do i do i think we banged doors up into hungry corner 150 going now jimmy's on the outside look at this but but jones jones will have the line mccombell mccombell coming back at him and richards richards has been turned around Brad Jones will take the victory and Audi won two. McConnell will finish second. There's Jim Richards. He'll recover for fourth place. Now, Jimmy, this is the slowdown lap. What's going on here? Jimmy's going flat well, out. He's not slowing down. He wanted to catch up to these guys. Now, look, this is the view from both cars. And yeah. Jimmy, not a happy camper in the slightest. McConville, well, McConville acknowledging that, but uh, not buying into it. But Jim Richards is one very unhappy punter at the moment. A little tap cam, wasn't it, mate? Yeah, but was an accident in the last lap, forget it. This is when I'm still smiling. Did you punt him off? Uh, I think he turned across the front of my car, to okay. be accurate. <laughs> I think he came in and gave me a reasonable spray, though. But Jim and I, we actually had some good hard racing. I, I feel, again, very fortunate I got to race against him because in GT Production Car Championship... The final round was at Oran Park under light, supporting um, Super Touring. We were both in RSCS Porsches and Fitzy. Bowie was in the Ferrari. Anyway, the championship went down to the wire between Jim and I, and we went down the straight. And I remember trying to squeeze him, and he was squeezing me back, and we banged rear wheel arches and got sideways down the straight. And that was the second last row, and he came up to me. And he said, what are you trying to do? And I go, well, trying to win this championship, Jim, you know. Like, if I have to, being young, you know, I was 22, I have to drive you off the road, I have to drive you off the road. And he goes, all right, well... Okay, game now, on. Now that you we know, know the rules, exactly. they we're on. Yeah. And then I think um, we shook. Anyway, I won. Yeah, that was it started to rain under lights. Anyway, and then in Super Touring, yeah, he was in the Volvo, and he would never give an inch. So, um, yeah, I think he came up to me after that and gave me a stern talking to. But the thing I loved about Jim is the next day he'd go, "Morning, Camo," and shake your hands, and you get on. That's how it should be, really. Play on, no grudges. The Audi era is an interesting one. So you spent two years with Brad Jones racing up in uh, Aubrey in the Super Tourist. How did that deal come together for you to end up there? Because Greg Murphy had departed and gone to V8s to replace Craig Lowndes. So the seat pops up there. How, how does Cam McConville get into that seat? What was the, the process of that all happening? Yeah, they um, from memory, Kim contacted me and said... Um, we're going to do a test day out at Calder Park, so we're going to run some young drivers. Which I think from memory, hmm. 
Darren Hossack. Yeah, Darren, Darren Pate, Darren Pate and correct. Christian Jones. Yep, and yep. so I think there was four of us. So and, you, and you won out. So what, well, how did you win out? What made uh, C. McConville the, the well, man for the job? I uh, I had Tom Warwick in my corner. Um, there were some drivers there that I won't say their names, but they were prepared to write some checks. So I was told that it was a turn up and go on your own merits. I think I did a competitive job on the day, and then about two days later, um, you know, well, we, you know, it was we, we'd love to have in the car, but this guy's bringing some money. And I guess that was I was lucky that that was the last time I did bring some money to get a drive. And I, Tom Warwick sponsored me in the Porsche, which he tipped in a lot of money, owned the car and funded the whole season. Um, and he said, well, you know, you can't miss out. This is what you need. So then he started to make some uh, discussions with Kim and Brad and they agreed to put me in the car. And so, but, but, you know, Tom did it as a sponsorship. There was Warwick Fabrics on the windscreen for the two years in the Audi. So, um, but hopefully I, you know, I delivered. I think we were third in the first year and second in the second year in the championship to Brad went down to the wire but um look you know I I guess Audi it was it was actually very good for me because then I got the business to run the Audi drive program off the back of that for three years so um and then eventually heading towards a supercar but yeah look it was the shootout and like any driver then the pressure is to hustle and find some budget which I had to do I think too when people think you're driving for a manufacturer-backed team you would have been, so we're talking 97, 98. Yeah. What are you, 24, 25 around that Correct. period? Yep. I think a lot of people would connect that you made it, you're rolling in cash here. But when you drive for Brad and Kim, surely there's not massive cash well, going on here. Well, I can tell you. What, I, were, you, what were you paid in your yeah, two litres? I can tell days? you, I was paid. And, and, and I, do, I do feel that I was in a period where, you know, other than that, where I brought a little bit of money, but it wasn't a copious amount. So it was, you know, under six figures. So it wasn't huge money that Tom tipped in, but I was grateful for it. But. I was fortunate to get paid all of my career to drive a race car, and that's something that I'm proud of, but but also um, don't take for granted because it's not that easy these days. So yeah, so 97, 98, I was paid 25 grand. That was my for salary the season, per year. That was for the season. Um, I had some personal sponsors as well, Tattersalls, and I was able to, and and I had a company car. So I think I was, I think at that age, I was driving around in a new A4. And look at me, I'm a factory driver on a whopping 20, 25k salary. <laughs> um, but you know what? I guess I was probably further ahead than most in their twenties that I was getting paid. And I had, you know, and and Tom passed away last year, but you know, I was certainly the first young guy that he really backed into the sport. So I was very fortunate to have that support with and he behind me. Became heavily involved with the um, Motorsport Foundation at CAMS, backing a lot of young drivers yeah, overseas. Will Power is one of the beneficiaries of Absolutely. Of, of Tom's backing and the like over the years. That Audi deal, though, uh, of course, we were in an era there of super V8 supercars, as it was then known, super touring, the war, and particularly the Battle of Bathurst. We had two Bathursts for two years in a row. And yes. You were actually blocked from driving. You were going to go back to D- DJR in 97, but you were you were blocked because you were an Audi driver. And Audi, at the time... Um, for Brad and Kim Jones, Peter Adderton, who modern yes. supercar fans will know from Boost Mobile, sponsor of GRM, he was integral. He was part of that operation. Um, do you remember the, the scenario of all that happening yeah. and how that played out? Because it's something that probably a lot of people overlook and forget. Well, I wanted to do both. Uh, as a race driver, I wanted to go back and I could have done effectively four Bathurst 1000s in two years, really. Yeah. So it became the Australian 1000, the supercars, um, or V8 touring cars as it was, and super touring took the traditional weekend. So... Yeah, I mean, they basically, Peter, um, to a lesser degree, Brad, Brad was probably the middleman, but because Peter was a fairly uh, staunch businessman, 
you know, the contract was threatened, you can't do it, you know, or you're not driving here effectively. So because Peter was a big part of that super touring movement, you know, and, and this is not having a go at Peter at all because he's that, you know, he was protecting his asset. Um, probably the asset was bigger, the V8 one in hindsight, really. But there was a time there where the super touring made some certain inroads on the landscape. Um, but then the second year, it seemed to relax. So I drove with John Bow and the Falcon the second year. So I did both. So I guess I did three Bathurst 1000s in two years. Three out and of four. I, I took them all, by the way, as Bathurst starts. Oh, we, we yeah. count them all as Bathurst yeah. starts. A Bathurst 1000 is a, yeah. a Bathurst 1000. What were those Audi A4s like to drive? They were, they were four-wheel drive, two-litre, mm. sequential gearbox, um, clearly very nimble. But just talk our listeners through what they were like to drive. What could you equate them to and um, how'd you go about probably it? Probably a GT car without aero. They were a lot of fun to drive at noon. So they were, they were well ahead of their time. You know, I mean, I remember when I got in it, I was like, wow how good is this you know and and i was spoiled also because of the quattro so there was no throttle feed you would break in downshift turn flat 100 percent. so it was more like driving an open wheeler um you know you could wear the tires out if you push too hard but the audi would just develop understeer it was so you know grippy in the rear i remember the starts you'd have 100 percent throttle on the throttle stops and the foot on the clutch and then just dump it back to about 80% and no, no throttle modulation required None whatsoever just yeah and you know they had carbon fiber tail shafts so they weren't cheap cars to run but they were well ahead of their time so i'd imagine they'll be what the TCR cars will be like now 300 330 horsepower 1000 kilos but sequential gearbox amazing brakes um, yeah so up until driving the current spec GT cars, it was certain they were certainly the best cars that I'd driven up until recent times for sure. Well, at like ten years ahead of their time, I think. Speaking of cars, this is a really nice connection. We didn't plan this, but this is going to sink nicely. Speaking of cars that were ahead of their time, Mark Larkham's Mitre Ten Falcon, his yeah, first yeah. one that he had a crack at, that you co-drove actually at uh, the Enduros in '96. Yeah, it's a car that at the time had all these things in it and ideas and thinking and engineering that was probably, as Larko admits today, from a single-seater background, but your little Mitre 10 period's probably another little chapter that's forgotten over time. Mm. Do you remember, what do you, how do you end up driving for Larko, though? That's the, yeah, that's I don't the know. Thing. That well, car, though, it was it, 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 on paper it sounded good, but it just never well, worked Larko out. Well, Larko I'd met in Formula Ford. I mean, he won in 90, no, 89, I think, mm. in the yellow car. So I'd sort of come in off the back of that. So I'd met him through Formula Ford. I think Larko was just always a big supporter of young driving talent, and he said he'd followed me a bit. Um, and and in fact, we were both had a common friend in Greg Peewee Siddle. Greg ran the Van Diemen business, and he was pushing Larko. You got to give Cam a go, you know. Cam, get a young guy in there, and so I guess Larko just took a bit of a punt on a young young guy like myself. Um, that car was scary, though. It was it was with respect to Larko. If you're listening, I'm sure he will be. Um, it was really different. It was. It was so ahead of its time because you sat nearly in the middle of the car, which, which is no a common other car thing. Did. Which is a common thing now, but Correct. at the time, no one Absol- built one like that. Absolutely, and I was just all at sea. I remember driving it at Sandown for the first time up over the top, and I was just like, "Where's the apex? I can't see because you sat with your bum." I mean, Larko is a purist racer, and that's what I love about him, and that's why he's so good on parting with his knowledge on TV. But when he engineered this car, it was just yeah, it was. He, he tried to make it an open wheeler. Um, so Sandown was a real struggle because I just did not feel comfortable in the car. It was so different to anything. And then Bathurst was a little bit better, but the throttle cable broke in that co-driver's practice. I remember missing an hour. 
So I gained. It was a year I felt really underdone, but Larko was a ripper to work with. He was very good on coaching, but then unfortunately I think he got cleaned up in the first stint or went off in the rain, so I didn't drive it in the race. It got shortened to a June buggy from memory. <laughs> you and Wetweather at Bathurst, 92, yeah. didn't have to get in, 96, exactly. didn't have to get Which in. I'm fine with that at yeah, Bathurst yeah. when it rains yeah, yeah. to watch someone else. You, you drivers are all the same. If it yeah. rains, let someone else have a go. Um, uh, we talked about um, the Super Touring era You'd spent time in co-driver roles. You finally got into the main game. Going to fast forward through a little bit. I'll jump all over the place a little bit here, and I don't want to keep it chronological because it lets you fall into a little pattern of telling the same stories. Yeah, true. So we fast forward through. So you basically do a decade full-time in supercars from 2000 to 2009, and then you decide, I'm not going to do full-time supercars racing, and you finished because you'd found your way back to Brad Jones Racing, having yes. done the, the Audis a decade ten, earlier. Ten then years, you, yeah, 11 you ended years up later or whatever. Sucker for punishment. I, yeah. I'm guessing the pay had gone up from 25 grand. A little bit, yeah. It was up to 27 and a half. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> inflation. Will, yeah. Inflation will do that. Yeah. Um, why? why? Why did you stop full-time? Because you were clearly still competitive and still in a, a good, solid team and you'd run at the front. Why? Mm, why did you stop? Well, a couple of reasons, Noons. I think, you know, firstly... I feel that some, and I'm, this is not having a dig at anyone else, but sometimes it's easy to stay on too long, you know, mm. past your use-by date. I think in hindsight, I probably went out maybe three to five years earlier than I could have. You know, and, was, and you were 30s? Uh, so 99, you? I was uh, 35. Uh, sorry, 2009. So I was 35. Which is not I old. Think, uh, not old in, in, in race driving terms, no, particularly what we'd see guys in Yeah, cars. I mean, you look at Craig, stayed on to his 45, but he's a different beast because he's just a freak. But um, look, there's a number of reasons, and I've said this before, I guess, on the record, that, um, you know, there was – I had young kids – um, I'd, I'd been doing three years on Channel 10 as co-hosting F1 and I just I was someone that never took what I was doing for granted as in that I didn't think the world owed me a race drive just because I'm a race driver does you know and and there was talk about Bridie coming to BJR with a sponsor um, and I knew Brad and Kim as much as I love them because they were the best team I, I'd driven for money's always going to have some clout there so I went, hmm, and they said, about mid-year, they said, look, we want you to stay, but, you know, we are looking for sponsors. And then, so I just thought, am I going to have to go out on the market, driver market again? You know, am I going to have a drive? And I always wanted to end it on my terms, not having to go and hustle, because to be honest, I hadn't had to find a sponsor for 15 years. Mm. I was fortunate that I turned up with my helmet. Um, but I guess on the other side too, I'd taken... I'd started to focus on, I was opening a tyre store, a Jack's Quick Fit franchise. I was co-hosting Formula One. So there was things where I went, mm, maybe it's just time to switch the focus, you know, onto these things that allow me to have more time at home was what I thought. I ended up travelling more after that. But I suppose the other thing that I really struggled with throughout the last few years of my career was the lows, you know, in motorsport. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that I had, chronic depression or anything like that I just I, I struggled with the lows you know and I I think um, you know mental health is discussed more and more these days you know I've, I've, I've seen it you know I've had it in my family but you know, I just I when I would have a bad result I would just sink really low uh, take that out on on my family at the time so I was over those lows. But what, being grumpy or just oh, didn't think, want to go think, and deal with things? Yeah, or? I think just like a lot of footballers have come out, to, just withdrawn, you know, mm. not participate in being there for my kids, you know, like not wanting to even hear them, you know, leave the house, like couldn't deal with them. 
So because I'd been such a bad space for the result that I'd take so personally. And I think when you're back in that mid-pack, it's bloody hard. And that's, I mean, and you mentioned that I was competitive, and I was. I think my last race at Homebush, I qualified fifth, fifth and sixth for the Saturday-Sunday um, you know, I had a second at Bathurst that year with JR. So, yeah, I, I was still competitive, but um, I, I just, I, I guess I'd had enough of those of those lows, you know, and I just thought now's the time to get out of my terms and 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 start, start looking at being around a bit more for my family, not being such a miserable prick. So I guess for the last few years, I had a bit of a love-hate relationship with car racing. You know, I'd lost a bit of that passion. And it's funny because once you step out, um, for a couple of years and then I was lucky to come back in enduro form you realize what you miss now that I have a real job I go man I had it easy back then <laughs> I really did but at the time you know the world was falling down around you so if the lows were really low did that mean that the highs were much higher than normal i.e the the high low graph was massively varied um, or was it just the lows that were the yeah the low? I'm someone that never celebrated the highs enough you know because I was always thinking well next week I'm going to have result you know pardon the language um for the pg rating we can this, bleep on, we can on a, bleep on the on the sleuth you should I have think. heard john bowers episode yeah. we had to do three <laughs> bleeps um so look yeah i didn't really celebrate the highs enough you know looking back because i'd always be i guess growing up was like oh no i've got to focus because you're racing again next week don't enjoy it too much so that was probably something that you know i certainly needed to work on on my career but the highs were great i mean you know, if you talk about the highs and low within two, three weeks, you know, Sand- uh, Philip Island in 09, I tangled with Steve Owen, went off the track backwards with no brakes and nearly got T-boned and put in a coffin. And then three weeks later, we're one second off winning Bathurst with JR. There's the highs and the lows all in one month. Yeah, yeah. Was that Philip Island accident where, for those who will remember the vision, you and Steve Owen clash wheels on the run into turn yeah. one? your car's out of control and it spears off through the grass and pops out the other side mm. on the exit of turn, well, halfway yeah. between turn two and three. There's a wall there now. Yeah. There's a wall there now, thankfully. Yeah. Um, there wasn't that day. No. David Bernard's in a Gary Rogers Motorsport Valvoline car at probably 200 and something. Yes. And you go swiping across in front of him before he even realises that you would have <coughs> been there. Was, was, this, was that part of... The decision um, the, had you made your decision at that point? Yeah, I year? had. Yeah. I had. Yeah, I made it about two, three weeks before the enduros, and I told Brad and Kim, but we kept sat on it for a while. Actually, maybe I hadn't told them till after Bathurst. Sorry, but I'd made the decision that I was going to pull up stumps at the end of the season. But I guess it, at the time it didn't phase me. I was just hoping not to get hit. You know, I had my foot buried through the floor, but the thing wasn't stopping because obviously there were no front brake lines attached on one side or whatever. But I remember that night watching it on Sports Tonight and Crompton's commentary, I think Neil's commentary was, that could have been one of our darkest days. So that sort of hit me a little bit. And I remember my wife freaking out watching it. Um, So it had a little bit of an effect afterwards, but I had, you know, subject, I guess some people thought, oh, that was why. But no, I'd I'd already made up my mind prior to that. And do you remember the moment that you, clearly these decisions don't come at the spur of a moment, but they... They're a steady progression. Do you remember the crystal clear moment where you made the decision, where you were, when you were? That's no, it. No, I don't. I don't. But it was was extremely clear. Yeah, I think I might have gone out for a bite to eat with Cass and discussed it. But um, and you know, and she was very much, even though I hadn't been around a lot by doing, you know, twenty two Formula One events out of Sydney in fourteen. There's thirty six weekends away from your family. She was still very supportive. You know, I'd back you if you want to keep going. And I just. Yeah, and I think that took the pressure off because at the back end of the year, you know, we had second at Bathurst. Yeah, we had some pretty solid results. It's funny how when the pressure's off the shoulders, mm. um, and and yeah, 
I, I know now and I see drivers, you know, motorsport is such a mental game, like any sport, you know, and um, that was probably something that I struggled with. I really did throughout my whole career. Was it something that we talk about, uh, we hear a lot about footballers, particularly who down the track go back and figure out why it was, how it was, and yeah. then, and, and seek some treatment? Or did you yeah. ever go to that point of, of going to talk to anybody? Or um, was it the, the bottle it up? Yeah, no, no, I, I, a couple of things. I mean, I you know, I used to talk to someone. I actually had a sports psychologist work with me for about a year, and he came to a few races. Um, he's now in Canada. He was really, really good. He was used to um, do all the sports psych for Australian rowing team. Now he does the Canadian world team. And he was very much that I used to analyzing me i used to really thrive on pressure you know like if i qualified bad that was going to be my best result because i'd always do my best work when my back was to the wall or when the pressure was on or when you know craig lowndes has got a championship to win at bathurst and you're his co-driver yeah no no that was when i would do my best work absolutely when there was high stakes no problem but i just struggled to put things into perspective i guess you know during the week that was where i really struggled with a bad result because i figured i only think in my career only twice had two-year contracts like at at uh, GRM, it was two years. At, at Brad's, it was two years. Every other contract was one year. Mm. So I'd get to July and I'd have the same stress and anxiety. I got a bad result. I'm done. That's it. My career's over. I was very good at catastrophizing, you know. So Is that yeah. a word? Is that a word? Well, it is in my world. It is world. now, yeah. yeah. But, you know, no, so I definitely had a, had a, a sports psych I worked with and a counsellor in general because I think everyone, when they have bad times, needs to talk mm. to someone. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I guess... I guess in hindsight, if I was able to see things in a bit more perspective, I probably would have had the the coping mechanisms to go on a bit longer than I did. So if you had two-year deals and the pressure of one-year deals, which I think a lot of people in motor racing, not just if they're drivers, if they're in all sorts of roles, would understand that situation of being on a one-year deal and waiting for an answer or waiting for some funding or waiting for a decision or waiting for someone else to make a move. In that whole period of twos and ones, were there other options? That's why I love going backwards through it because it's far enough ago that we can talk about yeah, it now, my can. friend. What was there? Am I right in remembering mm. there may have been a, a, a discussion or some overtures with FPR for you? Yes, you, you're right. When I, was that? So that was just before a bloke called Mark Winterbottom jumped in there. <laughs> uh, he went all right there for a while. Yeah, yeah uh, for a long while. So look, you know. Do I regret that decision? Maybe, maybe not. I so, was loyal so, to Holden. So was that an offer? Oh, there was absolutely. a deal on the table. Yeah, so this is heads of agreement for 2006. Yep. So at the end of 05, two years with Gary, there was nothing There was nothing wrong at GRM at all, to be honest. I mean, we were probably not quite a front-running team, but we're on the next level. I really like Gary. Um, but, yeah, I got approached by uh, FPR, David Flint at the time, and Tim Edwards had just started. So I had a whole new hierarchy there. Bridie was going to HRT. So I had the full tour. Oh, no, he, he was going to his own team. Sorry, you're yeah. right, his own team. Yeah. You're right, correct. So it was to effectively go into that slot. Um, you know, I had the big tour when the whole building was there. Um, and then we followed up with another meeting, a second trip, and then I finally had a heads of agreement to go there for a two-year deal. And for, for our fans who are wondering, what's in a heads of agreement? Is it a it's preliminary like, contract? Yeah, or? it's a precursor to a contract. So it basically says that you'd start on this time, this is a sign-on fee because there was a sign-on fee, this is your salary, this is what this is what it's for, you know, 14 rounds with, up, with the team. It's generally a one- or two-pager, and then you go to a bigger contract when you agree that. Um, but it effectively binds you to that team or to that deal. And then, yeah, I think uh, Holden got wind of that. And as I say, I had some allies in it, Holden Motorsport, which was really nice, and said, you know, we don't want you to leave. And obviously Paul Wheel 
was going to move aside, um, and and they were probably trying to bring Paul Wheel Racing, which was Murph in the other car, super cheap, up to a you know a second tier t- factory team. So I decided to stay loyal to the Holden brand, which doesn't happen as much anymore because the manufacturers are not putting in the same investment. Mm. But back then, I wanted to stay with Holden, and um, yeah, had two pretty lean years at super cheap, unfortunately. But that's just the way it went. And this was yeah. So I welded the wires together there. So this is for two thousand and six. Um, uh, FPR had had a range of different drivers the previous year to replace Greg Riddle late in the year. Yeah, Jason Bright. Um, had been there and was staying, and then this is the seat that Mark Winterbottom ended up getting. Yeah. And then Jason Bright left the next year to do his his own team to cover that he off. Did. So, so you stay loyal. You, you're a Holden man through and through. You spend a couple of years at PWR because Doric are a great partner of ours. It's kind of the Doric sliding doors moment of a career. Do you see how I did that? I like um, it. Had you done that deal, what deals would have not happened? Where would you have ended up? Could you have gone for longer? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, look, I would never say that I would have had the career that Frosty had because that's just disrespectful and that's just, who knows? You know, Mm. I might have had two years and I may have underperformed, but, I mean, Frosty had, what did he have, seven or eight at at FPR? Up up till last year, so he he went for over a decade. Yeah, there you go. Um, In the right environment, I guess, if the, you know, with with, with more, with better equipment and, you know, if I was at the pointy end, then I would have stayed on for sure, you know. Well, not for sure, because maybe my challenges out of the car and thinking about life after and my kids may have still come up. Um, so you don't know. Yeah. But but I guess if you had a better car, a better bat to play with, and I was getting more results, then maybe I would have gone on the extra four or five years. Who knows? How did you get the news that uh, this heads of agreement is not going to become an agreement? How, how does that situation... I think it's interesting to take the fans into a bit behind mm. the scenes of... They read the end result in a magazine or these days on the yeah. web of oh, deals being done with Joe Blow. How how does that deal not become a yeah, deal? Well, do you just get a phone call to say, sorry, buddy, that's no, we're going another way? Or how's that happen? No, no. So that was me that turned it down effectively. So it went, obviously, Holden decided to put together, or, you know, that uh, PWR was, was going to be a slot there. Um, so I met with Keys Wheel, met, met with Holden Motorsport, with uh, Simon McNamara and a couple of the other team there. And they said, you know, we want you to stay and this is what the deal's going to be and it'll be with Greg Murphy. You'll get to drive with Murph at Bathurst because you could there, which was a fairly big ticket for me um, to try and win that bloody race at some point. Um, so that sort of deal came up and then I um, I was getting some pressure from Tickford back then or FPR and I just had to ring them and say, look, I really, really appreciate the offer. You've got a great team, but something else has come up and I'm going to stay with Holden. And they said, okay, understood and wish me luck and then they obviously started discussions with other drivers so i sort of padded it out as long as i could but i had to be fair to them and um look you know it it, as i say i wanted to stay loyal with holden but i had pretty two bad years at super cheap we didn't get any results like i thought i would so maybe it is a regret i don't know in some respects yes the two years with super cheap um with pwr i vividly remember that the first rollout in 06 your first weekend you led. You ran at the front. The car was quick. Yeah. Then you were in a really heavy multi-car shunt with Lowndes and Courtney and yes. some other guys on Sunday, and it was like the balloon just disappeared yeah. from, from there. But the, the initial rollout was great. Yeah, we were quick. You're right. We were quick. Um, I think I might have got a pit lane infringement for a hose over the line or something in the pit stop, but I was running top four at Clipsal. Um and the car was really good because we hadn't muck with it. It was an HRT car. 
Uh, yeah, and then the second race, I blame um, my old teammate, and bless him, he's not with us, but JR, he turned, he was on the restart. I think he turned Fernando around. Oh, Jose Fernandez. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. came back across the track, collected not, not, James. Not Fernando Alonso. No, not Fernando. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't there that weekend. Jose, he was Jose. busy in Europe. But um, <laughs> Jose, and then he clipped James, and then James went across the front of me. And, yeah, so anyway, that car was severely damaged, and then Murph ended up in the wall in the same race. So we're both lying next to each other at the med centre. I go, oh, this is a good way to start as teammates. And his car was so bad, he couldn't run at the Grand Prix. So yeah, that's I right. we went to yeah. the Grand Prix one car less. And Jack Perkins got the slot yeah. um, in, a, in a Perkins car. Um, I, I, there's you so many topics. The stats, by the way. Yeah. No, no, no. Not a, not a, not a close. So two years at PWR, the second year there was clearly the, the harder of the years. Murphy departed, Port yep. Umbrell turned up. Yep. Um, there was discussions about team ownership, a sellout mm-hmm. to John mm-hmm. Marshall, who was uh, Marcus Marshall's uh, dad, who was, was racing at the time. That didn't go through. It seemed like the obviously when um, we've seen in racing teams in the past when a, a son stops racing, clearly there's other focuses in a family and the business and PWR. There's boom. So yeah, it has clearly that was the the right huge. decision to not go put as much focus into running a race team. Mm. So then, how does the road back to Warbury to Brad Jones Racing start? Was there again somewhere else you could have gone in that um, situation? Now is the time to reveal to us yeah, all. Yeah, no, no. I I used my decision to walk away from a factory four drive to go to PWR, I used it as leverage. I went to Holden and I said, you've delivered me a shit sandwich here. This has been an absolute miserable two years. And Keyes absolutely is a very successful businessman. But, you know, I've always believed that if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. So I'll gloss over the two years there, but fair to say it wasn't much fun. Um, so I went back to Holden and I said, this is, this is you know, this has been a joke, really. There's just team members leaving, the team for sale, not for sale, then it was sold, then it wasn't sold. Anyway, so they said, we're working on something, we're working on something. And I guess it was a bit of repeat faith to say that we agree it wasn't how we thought it would be. So they said, um, you'll, you'll probably you'll hear from the Joneses. And I said, well, they're forwards. And then I remember Brad came and had a chat to me, I think it was at the Darwin round, saying, look, we're looking at doing a customer relationship, you know, full HRT switching. I went, wow. And they said, would you be interested if we can put it all together? And I said, absolutely. So I really enjoyed, you know, racing for Brad and Kim, even though it was late 90s, things had changed, you know, but I knew them. Um, and I knew Andrew Jones, you know, he was a friend. So it all felt a lot more homely and friendly. And they were able to um, hold and were keeping me up. Then it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Then anyway, finally, probably not till November that year, looked like all the ducks had landed. And um, yeah, we, we did a deal. Got back together. We did. So uh, no, no four-wheel drive this time around, though. No, no, no. And I must say, again, you know, straight off the bat, um, my first round with BJR back in the HRT car, we had a podium at Clipsal. So the cars were great straight mm. off the bat, you know, and it proved that was a good decision for them. Let's talk more positive, good stuff. Winton 2004. There's a, there's a part of the Australian language now that is doing a Bradbury, i.e. Yeah. winning right at the end when other yeah. people don't do what they needed to do. In motor racing, we haven't quite called it a McConville, but the reality was Rick Kelly got passed on the second last lap. He didn't fall over. He didn't slip or trip on his skates. He just had a little no-nose there. He just had a small little touch of no-dose for a second, and the old mate in Valvoline Commodore 33 pounces. Do you look back on that as a – I mean, that was your breakthrough first supercar win after so many years and rounds of trying. What what are your memories – from that weekend and the standout of, of yeah, that result? all fond memories, Dunes, all fond memories. I remember being nervous in the um, Colin 
Bond's office afterwards, the DSO. Did you think that you might have been in trouble? Yeah, maybe, because there was a yellow flag. Ironically, Brad Jones um, had run out of fuel halfway out of turn 10, turn 11 down that straight. So they were covering it with yellows. um, And then I just assumed there was a green at the next corner. But to be honest, I didn't know where the flag point was because you're sort of looking through that corner, not left or right. Um, and it was the last lap, yeah, second last corner. And I, I just thought, oh, I'm second, you know, which is great. Started 10th. Um, unfortunately, Garth had a DNF. I think he had a mechanical. Um, and it came out of that corner. I got a really good run out of 10, but I absolutely did not have passing him in my head at all. And I guess what race drivers do is you've got to flick a switch and adapt at the last minute. But where the brake lights came on, I was like, wow, I was still 100% throttle. So I just kind of jiggled the wheel to the right, just not to hit him at first. And then I'm like, hang on, there's enough room here. It's tight. So bang, 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 sort of use the gears to slow down a bit as you do and, and manage to stuff it up the inside. And then, by the way, he was like, I, was, I remember being, you know, as you are, pumped with the first win across the line. But then the way he was flashing the light, swerving at me on the cooldown lap, I'm like, uh-oh, I might have cocked this up. But always the best part, you know, of defence is attack. So when I got out and he's attacking me, you pass, I go, there's green down there, mate. I'm pointing at the green. So I you were absolutely bullying it. Nah. Oh, I was just, it was just all, you know, facade because I was not sure at all. But I'm pointing down, there's a green there. And I'm going, please, God, be the uh, green there, not out of the corner. So when Colin Bond, so I remember Gerald McDonald was the Holden Motorsport and he's trying to put a lid on it. Because he doesn't want two Holden drivers no, bluing. Well, and Rick was refusing to go up on the podium. Oh, that's you know? true. That is uh, true. Which is not throwing Rick under the bus because he's a ripping bloke. But it he was, was true. Gun. He did not want to know about no, it. No, he did not want to go up there and accept it. And they're going, Rick, you've got to go. We'll sort out afterwards. Anyway. We went in straight after the press conference, straight in, maybe even before, I can't remember, but straight into Colin's office with Peter Wallerman, and he's got it there on freeze frame. And I'm literally just at his front wheel, wheel on wheel, as we're going past the flag point. And then he... The brings, green the, the green, green flag. flag yeah. And he brings it back a frame, and I'm not quite in there, forward a frame, and I'm in there right... If you drew a line, I was right, like, absolutely inch-perfect, pure ass. And he looked at me and he gave me a wink and he goes, Benefit for the doubt, I reckon, boys. And then Rick shook my hand. I went, yep, yep, I knew that. Like, all good. And walked out. And I, was, I remember, uh, you know, um, saying to Cass on the way home, because that was the first race she came to, I just said, oh, I can't explain how that even happened. because. And then I just kept the story. I go, yeah, I knew there was a green. I knew, but I, it was just total fluke that I hadn't overlapped him prior <laughs> to the green. As I say, I really just jiggled to the inside not to run up his backside because he, he was obviously, well, I've won. You know, Cam's mm. not going to have a look. Um, and he didn't cover the line, but I'm pretty sure he does now. Yes. He's in the lead. I've never seen him lose a race at the second last no, corner ever no, again. So right. you could be... And uh, I haven't won one either, just to add. So uh, on the last corner. Well, not many people have, to no, be honest. No, no, but no, it doesn't happen often, does it? Is it right that weekend that you got so excited that you dropped your phone in the toilet? Yeah, in the port And then uh, I had to do an interview with <laughs> Fatty Vorton of Triple M because the phone was going nuts because it, you know, it was a bit of the underdog. Cam McConnell had his first win, joined us on the line. And um, I had, I remember, yeah, so I, I went through about 67 messages, which you should not do when you're in the Portaloo after having raced 100 laps with a big bladder. <laughs> and then it, it smelled so bad, I had it in bits across the demister on the windscreen on the way home. But yeah, didn't uh, didn't get to ring many uh, people the, back. The glamour of being a V8 yeah, supercar. That's probably too much information. Yeah, I think we've probably podcast. gone a little bit too yeah. far there, but we do like to give all the backstories. So it. that's certainly a backstory. Um Tell me about the filling in for Craig Lowndes period because we, we mentioned before that you were HRT Enduro driver, uh, 99, uh, second with Craig, a, a podium at the, both the Enduros, which helped him clinch 
what became his last championship, which at the time none of us would have probably guessed yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you filled in when he'd gone and had his barrel roll down the road at Calder and you, you wheeled out the old car for, for yep, Simmons playing. So the, you're kind of the forgotten uh, one-off HRT driver from, yeah. from that. You had a well, little then, well, then I filled in for Jason Bright one year at Tassie too. I was there as well, That was Ford very DSO. last minute that too. Was the, that, that was like 10 minutes before the race. No, it was probably about an hour. Um, well, I was driving with Enduros with them in 99, so I partnered with Craig and I was in a John Faulkner Commodore, which I'd leased to do some rounds. And that's another thing uh, I, I want to... We'll, we'll come back to that too, but... Um, that was a preparation method. So, so was that a deal you did and you funded or HRT helped? No, no. Well, HRT, I guess, helped John anyway, you know, with components. But no, again, it was Tom Warwick um, and, and actually Peter Hill from Globe, uh, Globe Shoes, Mossimo. We had a split livery of the car. So I got some funding together because I didn't want to go. And I knew Craig's Championship was the first year it was part of the series. I had effectively Craig's Championship on the line. So I wanted to do some races. So... HRT connected me with John, and we did a deal with John Faulkner, so, which was a good car. Which was a handful of rounds. It was three rounds, yeah. yep, yep. I think QR, uh, Calder, Sandown. and Sandown, that's yep. right. Um, so I, I saw the rollover. I was on the grid, and I saw the car going through the air. I didn't once – I mean, it was, like, horrific. A lot of people stopped, you know, to make sure Craig was okay. And then, yeah, I got the call the week after saying, look, he's not going to make it. Do you want to fill in just for one round? Could be more. And I was like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I remember jumping into the HRT VS because everyone had gone to VT or the front half. In fact, at Tassie, it was Garth Tant. Garth and I were the only ones still in VSs. He was at GRM, so it was a bit of a battle for the VS Cup. <laughs> but I got out of John's car, which was an ex-HRT car, into the But it had been it, – it's the car that a lot of our readers will know yeah. called Beth. Which, yes. But it had been built in 1994. So yeah. by that stage, it was five years Long old. Tooth. And it had done a fair bit. Very good car. Yeah. Um, but and I remember doing around. a seat fit in the HRT car, and it was just – everything was mint. Like, they basically rebuilt the VS for me for that – like, from the ground up. Yeah, you know, everything was new. And I went out, and I think I was second fastest in the first practice. Um, like, the car was a jet. I was like, my God, this thing is just a rocket ship. Like, it just felt so nice and tight. They said, what do you want to change on the car? After the I go, nothing. It's unbelievably good. <laughs> um, but then it overheated because we had a wet race on the Saturday. And I was running, I think, sixth or seventh, battling with Garth, I think, for somewhere between sixth and eighth. The and VS it, Cup. Yeah. yeah, the VS Cup. And the radiator got cemented by all the debris and the blinding rain down at Tassie and the engine overheated. So I had to sit out the second race because they were quite close together. And then it all came together. Obviously, a, a runner-up result at Bathurst was enough for him to get the championship. And yep. it gave you one of your now six... I mean, six Bathurst 1000 podiums. I know there's mm. no top step visit there, but, well, actually, you scored six podium finishes, but you only got to go to the podium five, five times. times because yeah. uh, to cover it off the two-litre Audi, you finished fourth in one of them, yes. but Paul Morris and Craig Baird were booted, so you got yeah, po- pushed up right. a spot. And we got the trophy, but it was a couple of hours later. Yeah, it wasn't quite the way to go, but no. you've got to look back on that with, with great pride, mate. I mean, six times to finish in the top three of the Bathurst yeah. 1000. There's guys who've won the race maybe once, and been the podium twice. I mean, you've got to go six times in your different eras of your yeah. life and your racing life. It's, True. it's something you should be proud of. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think my first, well, my first podium was 99 and my last podium was 2016. So there's a few few waters under the bridge there, um, obviously with Nick Perkat, you know, coming in for LDM. But um, I'd probably trade three for one win, to be honest. I'm not but sure that that system works. No, uh, we can try. Unfortunately, but- it doesn't. But... <laughs> You know, I've still got I've still got some of my Bathurst plaques uh, and the twenty four hour up at home. You know, it's um, yeah, it's I guess some people you know that you meet go, oh, I used to race, and you know, if you, 
have you done Bathurst before? I go, oh, yeah, a few times, but I, I don't need to tell everyone. But it's nice to know that you had the six podiums. And, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a race that you could never get sick of doing and being involved with and obviously doing the 12-hour this year. I just love going back there. I love the place. You went there a different way in 2005, and this is a little bit of a – I've got a little bit of knowledge here. So mm. back then – you dreamt up this concept, and I think you and Andrew Jones, you were teammates at Gary Rogers at the time, and um, a certain podcast, a certain podcast host was your team PR at the time. Anyway, that's irrelevant. You guys came up with this great concept that you would do: climb to the mountain, a charity bike ride over about ten days, and you'd ride from Melbourne to Bathurst about a month before the race. Now, you can reveal all here because whenever I drive through Wagga on my way to Bathurst every year, over that big bridge when you head towards the Olympic Highway that's just out of town or just before you get to town, yep. I have a vivid memory that scares me to this day of a certain man on a mo- uh, not a motorcycle, on a bicycle nearly spearing over the overrail. Smashing his face on the bridge. So if you look at the vision from Bathurst 2005, any interview with you, you've got a snowflake on your chin. Yeah. What was that from, Cameron? Yeah, that was from going over the handlebars on the bike ride. And I guess... I have to You hit apologize. the side of the concrete wall yeah, and I've nearly been, went down a drop I, of about 50 metres. And I went over that bridge last year on the way to a ski race just quietly and I went, oh, I've been over this bridge nearly. Mm. And um, I guess I have to apologise some um, 14 years later for dragging you on the reconnaissance for that trip <laughs> because we drove every single leg of that about three months before. But we did raise over $50,000 for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, yeah, so it was all worthwhile. It was worthwhile. Yeah, it was, it was a nice thing to do and Jonesy, my teammate Andrew Jones that year, uh, finished fourth at Bathurst that year with Andrew. That was his best finish. So um, we we did the bike ride about two weeks before. We left all the bikes up there. I remember flew back. Um, but yeah, I remember telling everyone, guys, you got to focus because we had a couple of crashes on the first mm. few days. So there was a group of about ten of us, and then we get people to come and ride certain legs, you know, uh, of or sectors. So of there's it. ten doing the full thing. Yes, and then we had the odd um, guest ride. I think Correct. Brad Jones and Greg Russ joined us out of Aubrey. They did for about eight minutes, yeah, and then they went they, back. Well, they look good. Exactly. Before <laughs> they told. we did a hundred k's a day, as you say, over the ten days, roughly. Some days were more, some days were a bit less. But yeah, I remember reading the right. Then this day, the traffic was banked up behind us, so I looked back to wave all the cars through, and then I hit one of those cat eyes with one hand on the handlebars. The bike turned hard left and nearly went over the bridge. So I was spread eagle on the ground, feeling sorry for myself. I remember when Rusty, Rusty got to Bathurst for the final day, and we did a live cross to RPN. He took one look at me and was like, "Dude, what happened?" Because I had this massive graze across my chin. I go, it's all good. It's just part of getting here. You, you chin butted the side of the concrete retaining yeah, wall I on the highway. Went over the top. So, yeah, I, I, it's all part of the experience. Someone can tell Gary that now. Yeah. Uh, we, we definitely didn't tell him that one at the time. No. Um, Another one that pops up to mind too, uh, these days you, you drive a Lambo in the 12-hour, but you also drove a wagon in the 12-hour. Yeah, that was, that, that was a that bit was of a, a bit different, different thing. And we got a podium in the, uh, in the sport wagon yeah. that year, third, uh, in against the Evos and the Rexes. So effectively the 12-hour then is what the 6-hour is now for yeah, production cars, cars before yeah. it became GT race. Um, we did the first year in the, in the wagon and Nathan had a big accident that was underbraked and... It wasn't sorted, so we went away for a year, didn't race anywhere, just did some development and uh, came back and it was wet for most of the day. So I think that helped us because we'd all had a lot of experience in, in at Bathurst, Nathan, Andrew Jones and myself. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we got a sneaky podium, which was nice, in a wagon. So another podium at Bathurst. Yeah, well, I guess I didn't have... In a wagon, though. That's right. the only one in a wagon. Who's... Yeah. 
tell me. Super Who, touring. I don't know if, uh, if yeah, the you Volvo got a wagon the estate. No, no, never close. No, 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 no. Never, never went there. Yeah. Never raced there. So you are one of three guys to have ever finished on the podium in a yeah. Bathurst enduro in a wagon. wagon uh, See, as we said at the start, you're a history maker. Yeah, history well, maker. Yeah. Um, these days, we, we mm. love to know what former supercar drivers are up to. You're still involved in racing, but it's on water, not on bitumen. Tell us about yeah, what you're well, doing. Yeah, well, I have now. a day job these days, so I guess... You know, um, as I mentioned, still fortunate to do some GT racing, three or four races a year with Adrian in the in the Huracan. And then I have a real job. So, yeah, took on the chief executive role for Ski Racing Australia. So we're effectively CAMs for high-speed water ski racing. So we look after insurance, the rule book, officials, governance, sponsorship. Um, so there's only three staff. Uh, it's, it's pretty full-on role. It's pretty challenging. And I guess... Like, I look at some of the new categories, like uh, TCR, and I'd love to still be doing it, don't get me wrong, but I do 60, 80 hours a week. I've chosen, I guess, to have a job outside of cars and, and try and switch into into that role. And as a CEO role, even though we're a small sport, it comes with a fair bit of responsibility and pressure. So, yeah, I've been to 10 ski races over summer, so that's our season's just coming to an end. But then now all the work starts, you know, revising the rule book for next year, um, risk management, renewing insurance, which is always a challenge because our sport is an extreme sport. So I've been there for one year now, and uh, every day's different, and every day's a challenge. And we see uh, this is the likes of the Southern 80 and things like that. So yep. guys who are skiing behind boats that are powered by a big berth of V8 engines. Some of them 1,600 horsepower. And the speeds that the skiers are skiing at, what, 100 and something? Well, we've capped the sport now, but, yeah, 120 miles an hour, so 200. So even with the speed cap this year, um, the boat um, TR Marine broke the record by 40 seconds with a speed cap, which means they're going quicker through the turns. So from a risk management perspective, that puts other pressures, you know. So I've just tried to bring trying to increase safety and look at some of the standards we have in car racing. Ski racing, we're a small resource sport. We only have 1,300 members, so we don't have the resources. But I'm trying to use, I guess, the FIA CAMS sort of structure to bring in. If we can get some standards on neck restraints, helmets, even though we are a risky sport, I'm trying to make it as risk-adverse as we possibly can. Good to hear that you're still connected to racing of of some sort. Just it's not very – not much bitumen there. It's – Bit of water, it bit is. of H2O. Oh, exactly. Hey, um, let's cover off some reader questions here. We've got a few lurking around. I've got a few more topics I want to touch on here. Yeah. You're trying to spy my piece of paper. Mm. Eyes away, eyes I away. I am. Um, uh, Scott Van Kalken asks, do you think you're out of your depth when you made your de- debut at Bathurst with DJR? We've kind of covered oh, that. That's an easy absolutely yes. Absolutely 100%, mate, yes. Uh, <laughs> move on, yep, done. Uh, Cameron Tapp asks, favourite road car you've driven and favourite that you've owned? You've probably owned a couple over the years, apart from company cars. and Yeah, I've oh, been very lucky to have company cars. You know, I had Monaros and SS Commodores. Um, I guess when I was at Sagami recently, I had a I had an Audi um, S3. And that's a, I think they're a very very good value for money car. I really do. Um, but in the last twelve months, I've been driving a Colorado Sports Cat. So we have an HSV sponsorship. So that's the best car I've driven. There you go. <laughs> and it's an HSV slash Holden. Ding ding. Um, Grant Bradford asks, "What was Jason Richards like as a co-driver? Have you got a JR story? We, he's dearly departed, but." I think we've all got a Jason Richards oh, story of how he used to drive us up the he's wall. Just, he's just so anal. Um, at, at, he was so diligent at what he did, but he was hard to tell you. Like I'd say to Jace, how do you go through that corner so quick, dude? Like, I have to break there. You're just having a lift. He goes, yeah, it feels like I'm just going to end up in the wall. 
and crash and burn, but I just sort of do it, dude, you know. I go, that doesn't really help me. Like, I'm trying to get a technical, like, you know, do you do you roll back to 80%? He goes, I don't know, bro, just, I don't know, I just jag it. You know, he, he was just, he just had a flair about him. And then I get one other story, when we're leaving Clipsal one night, we'd always share a rental car, whatever, and I go, bro, it's 9 o'clock, can we go? Like, I'm knackered, it was a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah let's go. So it took one hour from leaving the garage to pit exit. By the time he stopped and spoke 10 minutes, everyone's life story on the way out the door. Then all the officials at pit exit and security, how you going, how was your day? I just had my hand in my head, but that's the kind of guy he was. It literally was a one-hour wrap-up from when he said, let's go, to when we got to the car to leave. That was Jason. Love to chat. And was always, always constantly yeah. late. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? Oh, it's, it's actually... Um, it's similar thing that his wife has. I'm just uh, <laughs> Charlotte. We we tell Charlotte a time, and then there's a real time. We're all on different time zones. So I think we're both very good at that. I think the Tasman PR people used to do yeah. that with him as well. Just yeah. quietly tell him about half an hour before he was Correct. really needed. Yeah. Um, Jason Pym asked a question. This is a good one. I'm interested in which one you nominate here. Everyone's got a race in their career that was the one that got away. What's your one that got away? Uh, gee, that's a that's a tricky one. Um, Oof, I guess there's probably yeah, more than one. There's probably more than there's, one. There's, but I get one. One that I get that frustrates me was I went to America in '98 and did a Barber Dodge round. So open, was, open wheeler, o- open wheeler. Yeah. yeah, sort of like your road to IndyCar, slicks and um, wings car. And I had uh, Mossimo sponsor me. I went all the way to America and then uh, clipped wheels on the first lap of the corkscrew and barrel rolled into the gravel, and that was it. So I guess that was one that definitely got away. It wasn't one that I was in the lead on, but one that I'd put a lot of effort, a lot of money into going and looking at trying to relaunch in the state, you know, look at the open wheeler out. And, uh, yeah, it ended up with my head in the sand. And that was the only overseas race you uh, went did, and did? Only race. did some F3 testing, but, yeah, couldn't procure the budget, you know. And so, this was 98, uh, I think, from memory. Yeah, 98. Yeah. And I guess probably just one other one was my very, very last race full-time in supercars. Um Again, holding down fifth. So, and this is Sydney, two thousand nine. Yep, yep. Um, had a, a had a DNF in the first race and went right. I've just got to finish this. And top six would be a nice way to go out uh, over the back where it drops off camber. Came out of the pits after my stop. Tires were a bit cold. Let Alex Davison just get a bit of overlap and ran wide. And I went and then tried to turn. Nah, straight into the tire wall. And that's where it ended. Broken steering. Hard to steer. When you broke it, yeah. Steering. So two DNFs in my last two races. So there, there's probably another one that got away. When I think Bathurst's 2012 is probably one that stands out. You and James Courtney for HRT. Yes. Uh, late in the piece, I, I vividly remember you, James was in the game. Jamie Winkup, Dave Reynolds, those guys were all. They ended up fighting for the win there at the end, and Jamie got home by a tenth yeah. or two. But well, James was. P two, P three, there or thereabouts, yep. and moving forward. So but that then was that was definitely that's that you're hundred percent right. That was the Bathurst that got away. We finished fourth. Um, my last stint, Jay, I panned back to him in third. He got up to second in the first few laps, and yeah, was chasing down uh, Wink Up and was putting in purple sectors. And I was like, "This is it. We're on." Do you really then, think uh, that this is your ab- day? Absolutely. Yeah. I had the fingers crossed under the seat, and everyone in the garage started to like like grab me on the shoulder like you know this is it and he was catching him big time like you know half three quarters of a second a lap it was down to about one and a half two seconds from five seconds with about 19 20 laps to go and i'm like we're going to do it and then he started reporting a vibration in the right rear and then the tire started to delaminate so we faded to fourth Hmm. (laughs) 
I was trying to keep it up. There's, there's just another one of those lows I was but, talking. But, but about. the thing is, everyone's got way more lows than they have highs, oh, for particularly sure. of particularly in, at in any sport. Um, another question here: What are your thoughts of TCR? Uh, TCR, I think, is um, super touring at the right time. Um, in other words, it feels like super touring, but super touring was ten years too early for the market here. I think it's a much. If we're ever going to attract manufacturers, why would they sponsor a car? that doesn't resemble anything near the road car that they sell. Whereas TCR, much more reflective, Hyundai, Subaru, Honda, of what our market has become out there on the road. You've just got to look around at the traffic lights. I think, lucky if I see a Commodore a week now, and it's usually a rental car. With respect, I think it's the best way to get manufacturers in, and hopefully hopefully it becomes a good mixture of young guys and not just old guys like myself trying to come back for a drive. But I think, so far, I reckon they're well ahead of where they thought where I thought they'd be, so congratulations to them. Um, this one's a little bit of a loaded one from a familiar name. Uh, Adam Laws, who's an ex-Walkinshaw Racing Team member. now at the NAB Bank as a HR, I reckon. I follow him on LinkedIn. There you go. Uh, do you miss the Building 20 Dream Team? What was Building 20, for those who don't oh, know? Oh, Building 20, Walkinshaw, absolutely. They were some good guys. Matt Crawford was in there, uh, who's now gone on to the AIS from Memory as an Engineer. Uh, yeah, totally miss. It was actually really good, the guys there. And then I ran the Ute out of uh, Building Twenty. The, and um, this is on the Clayton Bundy Business Ute. Park where yep. HRT and Walkinshaws were for many still years. Still there now. So yeah, there were some good guys there, including Adam. So hi to Adam. Don't be a stranger. You've still got my number. <laughs> uh, and Quinton Robinson asks if you could keep one of the supercars you drove, which one would it be and why? It's, uh, that's right up our alley yeah, here. Yeah, totally. Well, if you can help me find this and fund it for me. Um, <laughs> To be at the 09 BJR BOC car, not my car, which was a wow car. So Brad uh, and Andy, I think, drove that. So the car I drove with JR to get second at Bathurst because it means a lot, that race. You know, Jace is a ripping guy. Taken too early. I still get emotional talking about him. And um, it was a bloody quick car. He put it on pole that weekend. Not sure where that car is. I can tell you. Off the top of it. It's in Queensland with a private collector and it was put back to its Todd Kelly HRT livery of... Of before previous that. before yeah, it went to, it was to Brad Todd, Jones. It was a Todd car in the fluoro sort of HRT colours from it. memory. Yep, correct. Um, so that would be that one. And uh, look, I guess, uh, you know, any of the HRT cars, you'd, if you're an investor, I'd grab because they always hold good value. Yeah, did you? Are you a man of memorabilia? Did you keep much of your stuff over uh, the years? I know a lot of drivers are really particular yeah. about suits and helmets and bits and pieces, but have you well, been. Well, my best there? suit, I. Um, I donated to some AM1 media company a couple of years back. <laughs> it's sitting on the wall somewhere. Um, Don't know what you're talking about. No. Look, I, yes and no. Yes and no. Obviously, trophies, yes. I'd, you know, I'd love to keep them for my kids or, and perhaps their kids down the track, even though they'll be covered in dust and dirt. But um, not so much. I've never been a big collector of the model cars because, again, I used to give them to the kids when they were little and then they'd rip the rear wings off and try and eat them. And Tails, my son's still got my super cheap car in his room and he's 13 now, so that's nice. He doesn't eat rear wings anymore. No, not anymore, but it is damaged. It has no rear wing, so it's the original one. Um, So, yeah, look, yes and no. But I've certainly still kept the odd team shirts and all of that. I've got heaps of them. Sort of hang on to those a little bit. Did you ever manage to find a way to get a Honda F1 driving suit? Because you are, after all, we talk about history maker, yes. the last man to drive a Honda Formula 1 car. Well, yeah, before they pulled the pin, the Earth Dreams. That was a great day, actually. It was one of my most enjoyable days in motorsport in uh, 08, having the day in the Honda, which... Um, Formula 1 car. Formula 1 car. The real deal. There is a real deal. So I actually found it the other day. It's in a bag. So I've got a beanie, team gear and suit with my name on it with the Honda. So, yeah, I've definitely kept that one. 
I've got a funny feeling that one's not going to appear on eBay anytime soon, no, nor should no, it. No, should it. Otherwise, I'd be like, this guy's desperate to stuff, <laughs> which I may well become yet. No, 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 not at all, not at all. And if you do, ring us first, we'll yeah. get first dibs. Um, before we finish, we like to do what we call the V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout, which is basically just a fancy name for yeah. word association. Okay. So I'm going to name a pile of things, and you give me the first word I'm that comes to your brain. This, by the way. If you need two or three words, okay. we'll, we'll let right. you pass. Like, pass. Okay. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Don't look at my sheet of paper yeah. <laughs> here for crying out loud. Formula Ford. Uh, Van Diemen. Fair point, yeah. which was the car you, you yeah. raced. Yeah, most uh, successful in Formula Ford, I would say, yeah. in my area anyway. Do, do we know where that car ended up? The 92 uh, title Cameron winner? Prince, who raced with me in go-karts, bought it, and then I think it went to WA. So it was the first of the monoshock. It was chassis number seven because it was 007. <laughs> so RF 007. If anyone's got it out there, I'd be interested. I can't afford it. But I'll trade something like a Honda suit for it. It's a start. It's yeah. a start. Oh well, we might make that a, a sleuthing mission to see if we can yeah. find your uh, yeah, that'd be your good. Formula Ford. So an RF ninety two Van Diemen. Yeah, 007 okay. is the chassis number. Anyone out there who knows yeah. where that is, please email I'm us. Make an historic comeback. It's actually historic now, by the way. Yeah, well, a bit you, like me. You can be historic too. Yeah. Uh, Dick Johnson. Uh, Larrikin. Nice. Brad Jones. Uh, intense. Hmm. Why? Oh, no, that's, I guess, intense as in uh, he has a lot of pressure on his shoulders running that team is where I'm going. Mm. Uh, ripping guy, but, man, he has a, not an easy job keeping that place going. A lot of pressure. A lot of money needed to run any Absolutely. supercar team at Absolutely. the top level. Uh, a good old engineering friend of us all, Wally Story. Oh, um, Wally Story, uh, just legend. There you go. Fair point. V8 Utes. Uh, fun. The old spec, mm. it's fun. The new spec, I just, I, I'm just not convinced that someone that buys a Triton or a Ranger expects to see it race. I think they expect to see it go on gravel and go camping. So that's where I'm just not sure on the philosophy, but I hope it works. But the old Utes are a lot of fun to drive. Uh, happy place. Uh, happy place. Being with my kids or simple taking my dog for a run in the morning i think that's about 18 words but we'll let yeah, that we'll right. let that Sorry go through that. Uh, tom warwick home then uh, home there you go tom yep. warwick uh grateful fair point uh lansvale we haven't covered even the lansvale era of your yeah. supercar career so i thought i'd stick it in here what springs to mind when i say lansvale, lansvale um and don't say steve reed and trevor ash no 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 just um genuine blokes that's good. That's like two that. words, but you know. I said you're I'm allowed on two words. You're, to you're, plates here. you're allowed two words. Uh, Audi A4, uh, weapon, and to finish off with Jean-François Omroule. Uh, 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 geez, what's a word with a G rating? Just a funny dude. No, practical joker. Right. Two words. So for joker. those, for those Let's who go back to one word, which was the original game okay. here. Yes, yes, joker. A okay. joker. So Jean-François Omeril was a Belgian Audi factory yep. driver who was brought out here to drive with you in the first Super Touring Bathurst, and he's the guy who was with you when you finished fourth, but you got the podium after Correct. Paul Morris was was, was booted. He, who's probably the most least known Bathurst podium finisher in the history yeah, of the Jean-François Omeril. He was just an absolute joker of a guy. He was. Young, like, you know, and he was a hot shot. He was quick, but he was just, he spent the whole time you're out of the car telling jokes and one-liners. He was a, he was a scream of a bloke, really good guy. <laughs> Can you tell any other stories? About him? Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, not, not in this time zone, no. <laughs> but um, 
he yeah maybe ask brad next time you see him all right he, was, he was a funny dude very we, funny we might do that camera carnival as always a real pleasure thanks for joining us on the v8 Sleuth podcast great to see you thanks mate thanks for having me there you go. A quick chat, but we packed plenty of good stuff in there. A big thank you to Cameron McConville for spending some time with us at Sleuth HQ. Great to hear him open up on some of the funny stories and the great moments from his time in motor racing. Now, Cam also touched too on some of the struggles uh, that he faced during his career around mental health. If any of the things he talked about resonate with you, you want to reach out for help or just talk to someone, call Beyond Blue, 1300 224 636 or head to their website, beyondblue.org.au. They do a fantastic job. Keep an eye out on our website too, v8sleuth.com.au, and our social media accounts with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our next episode. Until then, hope you enjoyed this one. We'll be back with more very soon, so subscribe and make sure you check out all the action on our social media platforms, and we'll catch you next time on the next episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Doric. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.